This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. I just love that intro song. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Dojo Live. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. This is Tulio Sergusa broadcasting from Southern California, sunny, beautiful, sunny, sunny, beautiful Southern California. And joining me today is Carlos Ponce. It's good to have you back, Carlos, from Cornavaca, Mexico. Hey, Carlos. Right, exactly. Pleasure to be here again. After the a city of hiatus. eternal spring. The city eternal of eternal spring. spring, indeed. Indeed. And then, of course, uh, joining us is our guest from the city that never, ever, ever sleeps, Jarrett Kessler, who's the CEO at Easy Knock. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Jarrett. Thank you. There's definitely no spring here. It's snowing behind me, so I'm jealous. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I don't miss that. That's for sure. <laughs> but uh, the energy of New York City, you just can't beat it. So uh, welcome to the show. So Today, we're talking about property technology, property tech, or prop tech, as some will call it. Uh, but before we do that, let's get to know our guest and uh, the company that he's the CEO of and go into the topic of conversation, see what we can learn about uh, how to innovate with data. So uh, let's get to know Jared, as I said. Uh, Jared, if you could please introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what Easy Knock is all about. Love the name, by the way. Easy Thank knock. you. Uh, it was the only domain that was available for cheap price. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Jared Kessler. I am the co-founder and CEO of Easy Knock. Uh, prior to Easy Knock, I spent uh, most of my career in financial services. I was the global head of equities for a firm called Canner Fitzgerald. Before that, I, I worked uh, leading cross-asset business for Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Uh, I started my career at Bear Stearns, so I've worked at definitely a lot of banks, and um, I live in New York City, um, and what I like to do for fun is I play the banjo, and I'd love to play practical jokes. Nice. I had a friend who worked at Canterbury's Trail, unfortunately, perished during 9-11. Very sad what happened to that entire firm there. Well, welcome to the show, Jared. So tell us about Easy Knock. What gave birth to this idea? What was like the ha-ha moment? We got to go do this. And uh, what do you guys do today? Yeah, so the concept of like being a renter of your own home always sounded like a really sexy, cool idea. But when, I, when we started Easy Knock, we didn't really understand the why. And what we quickly figured out is after the 2008 credit crisis, you know, because of uh, penalties, because of subprime lending, which everyone I'm sure is aware of, where effectively people were getting lent to people that they knew could not pay back loans, the unintended consequence was um, restrictions around qualifying to get any of the lending products out there. So you fast forward 14 years later and half the United States is shut out of those markets. So the only choice for people is to sell their home if they want all the money out of their home. There's a trapped equity crisis. So we started with the notion of institutionalizing the sale lease back, effectively letting people be a renter of their own home. They can buy it back, they can get all the appreciation. And what it's evolved into is we're building a platform where we've, we've bought a farm sale lease back business. We have a one year version where you can rent your own home and use it for your future home. And we're continuing to find these white spaces in the underserved market and create home ownership flexibility. Interesting. 
All right, let's go right into it because uh, curious to see what we can learn from today's conversation. Carlos, do you mind uh, introducing the topic and uh, the question or the theme we're going to answer today? Yeah, of course. And thank you. Thank you, Jared, for. Wait. Are you delayed? I think there's a. There... You're do good. we have a delay? Okay. No, you're good. Just go. <laughs> go with it. You're good. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, you never know with these tech glitches. Yes. Well, today we're going to be speaking about uh, innovation and data utilization in property tech. That's uh, the topic as chosen by our guest today. So first question that I have for you, Jared, why did you choose this particular topic and why did you feel it was relevant for today's day and age? Let's start there, please. I, I think it's it's exciting and, to, uh, and important to understand that the, the real estate market in the residential space is the biggest asset class in the world, which leads to the biggest addressable market. And I also think it's exciting to uh, help people understand that there's no other vertical or industry where there's more public data available. So I thought it'd be really interesting for the audience to understand that and just have a general discussion of what that actually really means and really invite people to think of new ideas and innovation around that. And that's my hope is that someone listens to this and is inspired and changes the world. Great. Thank you so much, Jared. So, okay, we're going to be starting accumulating a bunch of questions uh, out of the topic itself, of course. But, uh, Tulio, let's kick it off with uh, you first, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. If anybody has a question for Jared, just post it in the comments or on Twitter. You can tweet the question to us at Dojo Live. So, uh, Jared, um, can you just paint a picture for us of sort of what is the use case? What is it that you're actually solving? How did this come about in terms of a need for what your company is doing? Uh, sure. What is the alternative without the company? Just trying to paint the picture of what it looks like today and how you guys are solving the problem. Yeah, it's a great question. So in what I described before was a sort of an unintended consequence of the, of the Great Recession around 2008. And if you fast forward, you have a one, th like you take the United States, for example, one in three people have no mortgage. So imagine a scenario where you have a house, let's, I'm just making up a number, $100,000 house, you have no mortgage and you need money and you're asset rich and cash constrained. You either are shut out because your FICO score is dropped you're non-W-2 worker, so people can't figure out your income or you missed a credit card or a mortgage payment. Everyone knows, and everyone knows someone where it's happened to themselves, life gets in the way. So right now, the competition where the only alternative out there is to sell your home or bad choices, you know, get credit cards or student debt or, you know, other bad decisions where your, your household solvency starts to go down because your expenses go up. And even in the context of everything going on with, with, with Russia right now and all this other stuff, with inflation, people's annual uh, monthly expenses are going to go up. So what we're doing is we're solving the problem of giving people the benefit of selling without having to move. Now, historically, that's been like a reverse mortgage kind of thing. Is this similar to now? Is this a new vehicle? Can you uh, uh, explain that to us? 
Yeah, another great question. So that's a lending product and you have to be 62 to get it. There's only 400,000 of those in the US. It's complicated. So our average customer is around 50 years old. So it's not even an option for them. Um, you know, we pay taxes, we pay insurance, we pay HOA, we do repairs. So it's just a completely different approach where um, as opposed to you're getting equity out of your home in a reverse mortgage. And unfortunately, in many cases, the children don't end up getting anything in our product. They end up getting all the appreciation and, you know, when the house ends up getting sold in the future. So it's just, it's a lending product versus, you know, we're buying people's homes. They're selling it to us. Right. Brilliant. So one of the, the, the top on the subtopic, you said how technology companies can leverage public information in the housing industry to innovate. What, do you, what, what kind of information should technology companies leverage from public information and how does that help them be innovative in the industry? Yeah. Um, so the, the thing that's wonderful about innovation and how exponentially it's growing is the mere fact that the creativity comes in not, not accessing the information because you can find out what someone bought their house for. You can find out if they have liens on their house. You can find out what people's FICO scores are. You can find out all the macro sort of trends going on in the market and all the information around that, what, what people's mortgage balances are, what their property taxes are. The real creativity comes is how you utilize that information and triangulate it and find all the other derivatives to either find people that can utilize products like Easy Knock or what is the behavior going on that's going to trigger people to want to use that product. So I can give you an example, but I'll stop there before I, I go on. I would love to hear the example. We're, we're all about use cases here. Please share so, that with us. So I'll give you a perfect example. A second derivative is you find out what someone's house is worth. You find out that they have an extreme amount of equity in their house. You find out maybe that their FICO score is lower, so they're going to be shut out of lending markets. You triangulate those three things. That's easy. Then now the next step is, is how you connect the dots. So imagine a scenario where unfortunately most of us know someone that's probably gotten divorced, right? I think in New York, the divorce rate is 55%. So chances are, you know, someone that's gotten divorced. So when someone gets divorced, what happens? Someone, usually someone gets the home and then someone has to pay them out for the home. But if they're, if they're someone, if it's a, it's a one income household and the person that took the house doesn't have income, they can't get the money out of their home, but they just had to buy it out. Now imagine now you have a sale lease back, like our product sell and stay, that becomes very valuable. So connecting that, those dots of figuring out in a filing where someone got divorced, triangulating with the, all that information, figuring out where they're potentially going online through recognizing different various uh, patterns that have happened in the market where we see that, we can score our leads and then figure out who is the most likely customer to use our product. Jared, Jared uh, I have several questions, but I would like to start with one of the obvious questions that I would like to ask, it's the tagline that we use for today's conversation, which is the question of how technology companies can leverage public information in the housing industry to, for, you know, to innovate. That's the first question that I would like to ask you. Can you elaborate on this, on how this can happen? 
Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of what I described, but I'll go into it in a little bit of further detail. Yes, please. Um, so the price of your home, the mortgage balance, and then the second derivative I just described is the behavior, and the third derivative is where they live online. You can take all those, you can get more sophisticated, both on sales enablement, marketing technology, and then you can also figure out who's going to be successful once you have a good track record of people that you've served, who's going to be successful and who's not going to be successful. And you can literally figure out and tell someone based on historical data, you're going to probably, you know, we're not going to say it to them, but we're going to decide because we want our customers to be successful. Who's going to be successful? Not, we can guide them. We could figure out if there's further education we should be giving them. If we need to give them tools to, for example, do credit repair. And you can, you can just imagine how sophisticated you can get. So I think the, you, the, the deeper dive on that question is, uh, is, it, is it a product that brokers, for example, can leverage through EasyNock? Are you now a capability that a broker could go, you know, let's say I call a broker and I have a relationship with someone because I purchased a house and I describe, here's what's going on. I want to purchase some things. My, my score is low. All the reasons you've given, right? Or I could be a broker who's looking at where there's opportunity, where I can enhance the uh, relationship with a with a, with my marketplace. Is this a product offering that is licensable through brokers? How does it work? So one of our main channels is partnering with real estate agents. Um, the 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 real dynamic going on in every industry in the world right now is if you don't erase these tools that are available to you, you're gonna be left behind. So you can imagine a real estate broker who has a customer that cannot uh, get money to buy their next home. They, you know, they sometimes you have contingencies, which if you have two mortgages, it messes up your debt to income ratio. So by buying someone's home and renting it back, we kill contingencies and now we give them money for their future home. So we have a one-year version of our sale leaseback called movability, which we buy the home. Now they have time because they can rent it. Now they have cash for their next home. And we've also eliminated the contingency so they can get a mortgage on their future home. So those three factors is a very powerful tool for real estate agents. So we're very much aligned, unlike a lot of companies out there that are trying to disrupt the, the, the real estate agent community. Jared, uh, wow. one more. Regarding the let's say the demographics in the US, for example, we're discussing technology, right? And uh, because we're discussing also something that is of value to homeowners, which is obviously their home, right? So you might have a specific segment of the population that is a certain age that is more attached to their home. Uh, is there any effort in, uh, in terms of, uh, any effort towards learning more about this particular customer base that is going to be um, that's going to be let's say adopting a solution like what EasyNock is doing in terms of the technology because you have a lot of this age groups might not be so um, inclined towards the use of technologies. How do you deal with this adoption part of the equation? So the adoption part is you you hit the nail on the head, which is you have to find through data, which is the whole point of what, you know, the theme of what we're talking about today, mm -hmm. sort of the migration patterns, the people that are going to utilize your product, the people that are going to need your product. We mm -hmm. want to be where people need it, 
which is referred to in the tech world as the, uh, and, and other places as a painkiller versus a vitamin, which is, it's nice to have. We want to find the places where we're going to be of the most use to consumers. So a perfect example is Texas where Florida might be better markets than New York because you're seeing a huge migration in the United mm -hmm. States of people going there. So what's that going to do? It's going to create more appreciation in the homes, which is going to create more opportunity for the trapped equity crisis, which is going to be sort of that, that flywheel or that, that dynamic, not flywheel, that dynamic where people are stuck and we can, we, we can help them because they need to be helped, especially in the context of inventory patterns or where interest rates are. So you, again, going back to what I said, you triangulate all those, those, those data points, which is everywhere. And you can get really smart about who you can target and who you can help. All right. Thank you so much, Jared. Totally you, right. know, you got me thinking here. I'm by no stretch of the imagination a real estate expert at all. But I do know that since the bubble or the downturn in 2008, construction, new construction has been significantly slow. Uh, so inventory hasn't kept up with demand. And then you've got the pandemic that came and caused this great resignation, which is really just people moving from jobs to job, big shift. Recently, 4 million people last month shifted again. So you've got a lot more mob mobility today than you did, say, even three years ago. Has that helped you guys? Because it, the use case of I sell my home and I can rent it for a while till I find something new gives a lot of flexibility totally makes a lot of sense, especially since the inventory isn't there. You might sell the home, but you're not going to find one so easily sometimes. Is, have you seen an uptick during this big transition and change in the past couple of years? And how have you guys uh, capitalized on that? Yeah, so we, we put out a press release because we did a fundraise uh, a few weeks ago and we put in our release that our business was up 200% last year. Um, you're spot on. Think about this. If you're in your home and you need where you want liquidity out to enjoy your life. What it used to be, if we, if you remember, I said earlier in the conversation, the choice was to sell your house. But if you have nowhere to go because you won't qualify for rent to be a renter because you have to have a certain FICO score or you have to um, where you can't get access to the lending markets to get a mortgage, you're stuck. So we're an amazing option for people because we're very customer friendly. And so you can just imagine as expenses go up for the average American before the, uh, the, the unfortunate events in Europe, the, uh, the average Americans, uh, I think it was $250 a month increase in expenses. I would imagine that number is closer to 400 now. So the math doesn't make sense. So people are going to have to go into their homes to, uh, to, to take control of their lives. Yeah, yeah, twenty-one percent uh, index increase. Uh, I, I would guess it's a lot more than two, four hundred dollars, especially in very in markets like New York or California. Absolutely. All right, so this is a great option. Gives flexibility. I I like the use case that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of divorces that are happening out there, and it's very disruptive. Families have to move and change. So this gives the option to want to stay in a home and rent out their own home. Where do you see the sort of trajectory of this uh, moving forward? Is this mostly going to be something you do domestically here in the U.S.? Are there options to offer some of these vehicles internationally? And if so, where? Sure. So 
like I said earlier, the biggest asset class in the world is the U.S. residential housing market. And there's millions of people. So I don't think we've scratched the surface. We just need people to know that we exist. So that's our challenge, right? The second piece of it is, are there use cases, excuse me, are there opportunities globally? Absolutely. I would say Australia and Canada would probably be the next markets we went to, and then possibly Mexico after that. But we have a giant opportunity. The second piece of it is we're going to expand our product offerings for buying and selling where there's sort of white spaces in the market, as I said before, where, where we don't see, where we see uh, the, the market underserved. So that could be whether, you know, there's products that do fractional ownership, there's products that do lease mm -hmm. to buy, there's products that do cash offers. We're innovators in prop tech, so we want to continue to find these white spaces. Interesting. Very good. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, talk about a little bit the company itself. Uh, you, you're a technology company as much as you are also providing these financial vehicle. How is that? facilitating this for clients what what is the user experience like can you walk us through sort of uh that experience a little bit how do i get started if i wanted to get going with you guys is there an app is it online how does it work sure so we couldn't run our business without technology because we have 110 employees we have thousands of homes and um so that makes us have to be a property manager, a marketing company, a technology company, capital markets, um, and 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 a lot of other things. So you go on, you go online, and we pre-qualify someone in sixty seconds. We can pretty much tell you if we can move forward or not. We want our our customers to be successful. Then from there, no one's gonna sell us their home without talking to someone today because we're a new product. I'm sorry, like it's people's biggest asset. They're going to understand it more over time. That might change, but I think that's completely unrealistic to believe right now. So we have someone really make sure they understand it. And then from there, we make sure they get a test. So we test them to make sure they understand the product because we never want someone to feel that they didn't understand our product. Um, from there, we go through a traditional closing process where it gets passed on to a transaction management team. And then we buy someone's home and we give them a lease. And they have the option to buy back the home for the cash we give them plus a fee or they in the future they they, they can control a sale process and they'll get the difference between whatever the house sells for and the and the repurchase price i just described that's our flagship product sell and stay we have another other products but to keep it simple that's how they do it so we're really focused on education and make sure that we put them in a position to be successful nice go ahead Tara. Yes, Jared, we here at Dojo Live, we've spoken to several uh, real, real estate tech related companies recently. And uh, the common thread to many of them has been certain, um, let's call it uh, shifts or pivoting in uh, due precisely to what we have all gone through, like COVID. We're talking about COVID. Uh, there are things like uh, safe, safety or health regulations that have affected them because they have to shift their business models. EasyNock has been around for several years pre prior to COVID hitting like at full swing. What has changed internally at EasyNock in the, over the last, let's say, two, three years in, in one way or another? What can you tell us about that just to connect with the, the topic of this transformation that's been going on around? 
Are Carlos, are you referring to the culture or the business model? No, the business model. Um, yeah. So I, I think what we what we what we've learned is is that unfortunately, the worse it gets in the economy, the more important our model is. So we've tweaked our our marketing and our approach to make sure people understand the benefits. What we started doing is we used to talk about the name of our products. None of our customers care what the name of our products are. They want to know, mm -hmm. can you can you give me the benefit of selling without having to move? Can I sell the headaches and 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 sell the house, keep the home? Can um can I use my home as leverage for my a future home if I'm planning on moving? So what we've realized is, is we have to get better at making sure people trust us. They understand the product because um, the challenge is explaining, making sure that people understand this and they're comfortable. And uh, so th the key is always just reacting to what's not working and making sure you, you, you're you you're doubling down on what is. And that's what we've spent a lot of time doing. Great. Thank you, it's Jared. Fasc it's fascinating. Post-2008, uh, uh, millions of people went bankrupt. It, it impacted a lot of people in their personal lives financially. This kind of thing would have been amazing to have. You could have, people could have saved their home. They could have borrowed against the future. They could have literally survived through a year or two of very difficult circumstances. Uh, and, and so in a thriving economy, how do you guys compete? You know, we get it. We see the use cases when things are challenging. In a thriving economy, I guess the inventory plays a role as well. There is still the problem of inventory and timing and, and, and what's needed for someone to, to move from an existing house to potentially purchase a new home. So how do you, how do you, uh, you know, sort of future-proof this business? Have you guys created a model that allows you to pivot based on what's going on in the economy? How does that, uh, how do you guys deal with that challenge is the question. Sure. So, we 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 started our business in probably year uh, eleven or twelve of the fifteen year run of every year the housing market on a on a new high. So we've been in a thriving economy. So we've seen what happens in a good market. We haven't been through a bad market, but as I just described, our business becomes more valuable and it's countercyclical. Uh, the worse it gets, the more people are going to probably need liquidity. And that's we're an alternative to lenders where we can provide that benefit of selling without having to move. So I'll be honest, I hope the economy doesn't get worse because I'm a human being before I'm a business person, but it's a very good thing for Easy Knock. Yeah, gotcha. Jared, we are approaching the final segment of today's conversation, and we always like to end to end it by asking by we don't want to end it without asking you specifically about the culture, the company culture, because there might be folks out there who could be watching the show and who might want to come work for you at some point. So what would you say to these people? What's great about the company that would make them want to just, you know, knock on your door and just be want to be, be part of what you're building? I, I would say two things. One, if you go to my LinkedIn page, the article, the article that pops up is how we tackled our culture started from the pandemic. And we put so much work into making sure that I, I take the approach. I work for the people. They don't work for me. Um, and it's my job. I think happy employees make good employees. A testament to that is our turnover last quarter was 2%. While like the average in the tech world, I don't know, it was like 25%. So 
the most referrals at our company come from people within. And I think actions speak louder than words. Why? Because we invest a lot into the people, we care about them, and they're just not, they're just not numbers to us, they're people. Love it. Thank you so much, Jared. That was very, very interesting. Okay, so Tulio, back Jared, to you. we're almost up on time. I'm curious to get your perspective about what it's been like building this business for you personally. What lessons have you learned that you'd like to share with other entrepreneurs who likewise want to make an impact on people's lives in a positive way? What have you learned about yourself with this process? Um, I, I, I would actually say when I was, I came from, I've worked in cultures where people always thought that money was the way that you lift morale. And what I've learned is that's the complete opposite. Um, I believe that experience matters. And the other thing I would say is I also learned that, um, that everyone likes the idea of working at a startup, but the real test for people is who has grit. And I think grit is one of the most important factors you need if you're going to be working at a startup because it's messy at times, it's challenging at times, you're not going to have the answers at times. Sometimes you have to do things that are just good enough. Great. Well, Jared, it's been great to have you as our guest. We wish you a lot of continued success. Uh, and uh, we, we love companies that put people first. So congratulations Indeed. on doing that. Uh, you know, and the proof is in the pudding, right? Yeah. How do you judge if a company's actually living by those words? Well, you said it, the attrition rate is the key indicator. <laughs> That's it. There's no other better indicator than that. So thanks for being with us. Uh, stay with us as we go off the air in just a second and wrap up uh, post-show. Carlos, what do we got coming up next week? This is the last live show for this week. Tomorrow we have our whole hands and we'll do a restream. But what do we got as guests next week? We got a full week ahead, Tulio. Tuesday, we have John Stefanos, uh, principal of Rally Bright. And then on Wednesday, we have Richard Bronson with an O, not with an A, okay, Bronson from Seven That would have been million. cool to have Richard Branson. Yeah, that show. would have been cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell my, my buddy Elon to join us in, sometime. Okay, and uh, Richard Bronson from 70, 70 Million Jobs. That's the name of the company. And finally, on Thursday, we're going to be speaking with Girish Redekar from Sprinto. So, oh, of course, don't forget that on Monday, we have the recap show in which we recap the previous shows, which is this week, in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Join us tomorrow, every single day, except for Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific for all these shows. And again, uh, everyone, thank you for watching today. Stay safe. And of course, Garrett, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Grateful for having I'm so grateful for you guys having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.